what does this brand actually stand for? And why are we here? And why are we important in society? And, and then from there you build out. And it, it's the, the distinction between traffic and audience, right? Mm-hmm. So it is so important for any commercial business to have traffic because those numbers are what's going to be put up on a slide when, you know, you go out selling advertising. And, and that's how we survive. So that's important. But actually there has to be a layer which is audience and it's much more sophisticated and you understand way more about them and you're serving them in a more meaningful way. Not necessarily by, you know, a paywall or anything like that, but they become a member of this community. So they interact with you more, they engage with you more, they send you content, they come to your events, um, you know, they they tweet about your content. You know, they, they engage in so many more ways. And I think you need a balance of those. You need traffic and you need audience. And, and there's a slight distinction there for me. This is the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators and global leaders. This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, a not-for-profit organisation with the mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew and on today's show I sit down with Katie Maloney, the co-CEO of Irish Studio and previously the CEO of Maxima Media. Now, possibly one of the most disrupted industries in the age of the internet is print media. And to put it into perspective, in the US, weekday print had a circulation of 60 million in 1994. But today, it's somewhere around 35 million, even with a combination of both print and digital subscriptions. And that decline in the print media industry is much the same throughout the world. And it's also having huge implications on the shift in how news is both created and consumed and it's changing society before our very eyes. Our guest Katie Maloney has been on both sides of the print and digital media aisle, where she started her career at the Irish Times, which is one of Ireland's oldest newspapers. And during her time at the Irish Times, she rose to become the head of marketing. But in 2014, she left the Times to join Maxima Media, which was one of Ireland's newest digital media companies. And today you might know Maxima Media for their popular brands like Joe.ie, Sports Joe, and Her.ie. And during Katie's time as the CEO of Maxima Media, they were named as the second fastest growing company in Europe by the Financial Times. Today, Katie is based primarily in New York City, where she's the co-CEO of Irish Studio, which is a media company that's focused on serving the Irish diaspora. Katie's really successful career in media was actually born from her love for the arts. She grew up immersed in drama and theatre production and wanted to pursue a career in acting until she saw how harsh the industry could be and the impact that it had on her older sisters who were both professional actors. My family did a lot of speech and drama and I think that's where a lot of kind of our creative streak came from originally. Um, We were always, you know... uh, given a lot of freedom to develop characters and do kind of be involved and add to different scenes and things like that. And that was definitely big for us. So that that was what I spent. I wasn't into sports. I didn't do any of that kind of thing. Um, and uh, I didn't really love school. I <laughs> don't know if, if, you know, if anyone really does, but I certainly um, didn't like the structures of it and didn't think that it, it worked for me. Um, and I think as well, because my family, I'm the youngest of five, um, but everything we did was was by committee and there would be family meetings for any decisions that would be made. And that's everything from like an increase in your pocket money to, you know, what kind of chores you were doing or whatever it might be. Or if there was bigger things like getting a dog or whatever, it was we all had to sit around and and say our piece and, and why we wanted it or why we didn't. Um, so it, it was always very equal. Um, and that, I think, maybe changed how I felt about kind of more formal structures and people in authority and all those kind of things. And I just felt like school didn't suit me. There wasn't room for your opinion as much or your creativity as much, which I had with my family and I had with speech and drama and I had with, you know, the other elements of my life. So I definitely think that, you know, being thrown into that from quite a young age was um, definitely had an impact in terms of uh, what, what kind of came after. And then I didn't really know what I wanted. Well, I did. I wanted to be an actress. That's really did what you? I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, both my older sisters uh, dabbled in it for a while. Some some of them really successfully. Um, but I watched what it did to them. And I saw it's a really tough industry, right? Now, loads of industries are tough. But I, I think you're so exposed um, as, a, as an actor. And you can be ripped apart by, you know, a critic. And it's tough. It's really tough. 
Um, so I kind of decided against that when I saw they, them both go into it and for it to be so tough for them uh, and for your confidence and all those kind of things. But I really loved the arts and I loved um, theatre in particular. Um, but I loved going to art galleries, you know, loved anything like that. So that's why I decided to, to, to uh, no, actually I didn't. I, um, <laughs> I originally went and did arts in Maynooth. Um, so I did sociology, anthropology and Greek and Roman. And uh, I dropped out after six months. Um, just wasn't for me. Um, I think I probably wasn't ready for the college experience. And also there was a change in what I could study and I couldn't study anthropology anymore. And that was what I really wanted to do. So what, I decided in, what to, endeared you to that? You know, people are fascinating. And that's why I love the job that I do. And um, the roles that I've always played in media is that we can actually tell so much about our audiences when, when we put the time and effort into it. And I find it so interesting that, you know, you might stand in front of someone and they might say they're into politics, but then you look at the analytics and it's not really that, it's the Kardashians or whatever it might be. That's a bit of an extreme, but we all have a version of ourselves that we put out there. Um, and I, I love the combination of what you learn um, about people from Google Analytics, which is, is very flat um, and, and paints a certain picture. But actually, when you dive into it a lot deeper and you you ask people questions about what they think, feel and believe and want to experience, that's where it gets really interesting. Um, and if you can dive into that even more in focus groups and figure out what are the influences that made people that way. Um, or if you watch the different generations and the kind of content they respond to or the platforms that they respond to. Um, it's really interesting as well. So I, I've always had a, a, a deep interest in, you know, humans and why why they do the things they do and, and why we act a certain way. And I, I think that content is incredibly powerful in terms of the way it can shape people or make people feel or, you know, help them change their opinion or direction. Um, and I, I love watching that impact and seeing how it can change. Do you think in that case with having those sets of interests that you could have done anything across any spectrum of analyzing people? It just happened to be that you chose marketing. Um, yeah, but potentially. I mean, I, I don't think I set out to do marketing. I, like it certainly wasn't what my degree was in. Um, I when I when I left Maynooth, I, I went back to Sligo and I um went and worked in a factory doing 12-hour shifts making videotapes. So, uh, and that made me just go, this is definitely, I definitely want something more than this. I want something that has interaction with other people. And, you know, so I I really learned a lot by that process. I'm really glad it happened. Um, How long did you work in that job for? A year, just I wanted to pay back the fees. So that's all I wanted to do, save up enough money so I could go back to college and reapply. So I did it for a year um, and really great lesson. And then I went back and I went to Dunleary and I did business with arts management. And, and that was because, again, back to, you know, everything earlier, I knew that, you know, to work in the arts, it's it's really tough. Um, there's not a lot of money in it. And actually, I could see from different things that I'd done that um, a business acumen would really help some of those organizations. And I felt like that was a, a really interesting route to go down. Um, and that's that's why I chose that course. Well, there's two things that I'd like to ask more about from your youth. So you mentioned that you were one of five. What was the gap between you and the eldest? Um, I was born on my sister's 10th birthday. Oh, so that's very tight for, yeah. for five siblings. So yeah. were you all quite close then? Yeah, yeah, very close. Um, I mean, I kind of feel like there's two, there's kind of two different elements to the family. So there's when we were all really young and it was super hectic. And then um, my eldest sister and brother went off to college and there was kind of the three of us and we were there together for quite some time. So it feels like almost different families, you know, um, but we all get on really well um, and are still very close to each other all the time. Uh, but they definitely were. I mean, the fact that my, you know, the three eldest went off to college and I saw that it definitely had a, had a big influence and, and the different things that they did. Um, and then my, my brother, who's, is the closest in age to me, um, he didn't go to college, but he was the kind of individual who always had something on the go. Like he was, you know, charging people to park in our estate when they were going to the matches in Markovich Park and stuff like that. He always had something. Um, and I really think he had a big influence on me as well. And he now runs his own business. And, you know, those kind of things do impact as you see that coming before you. It really gives you drive and it, it just opens you up to opportunities. You don't feel like you have to go the the route that is traditional. Um, mm. And that's really important. Did your parents encourage that to kind of find your own path? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think my, my mom would have had to have given up work when when she got married. So she, she didn't work for years and then uh, went back to work when we were all grown up. So that was really big and really important. So she was always, you know, 
very supportive in terms of whatever we wanted to do. Um, and there wasn't massive pressure. Like there wasn't, you have to do this, you have to do that. But there was always curiosity. Um, and, you know, I know we'll come to talk about the Irish Times, but that was a really big thing in our house. Like we would all sit down and you would take a section and you would read the Irish Times. And, um, you know, if we were getting the train to Dublin, that's what we would all have and that's what we would all read. And so, you know, those kind of things of, of learning more was all, always big in our family. And it, that might be from, you know, reading the Irish Times to when we were at Speech and Drama and we were doing, you know, kind of Greek mythology or doing pieces like that, that you would research back into um, the characters and where, where that came from and where the writers were. So there's a real deep love of literature, um, of art, um, and then just of information. And would they have been the ones, the, the custodians that would have passed that down? Were they always there kind of, where did they get this interest from your parents? Um, I, I don't know. We always ask this. Um, and uh, I don't think there's anything that they can specifically put their finger on, but they just were always curious. And I think that's an, an incredibly beautiful thing to pass on to your kids. Um, and, you know, whenever we asked about things, it was always just, you know, we'd go find it out or if we didn't have it, you know what I mean? If we didn't know the answer, we'd go find it out. Um, and, and even some of the times when we would have the family meetings, which sounds so strange to say now, but, you know, we, we could ask any questions we wanted, you know, and, and there would there might not be an answer straight away, but there would always be a return to it and, and an answer, um, which was always really great. I can imagine by having those meetings, you had to find your voice quite early on. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, so th- this would have been when I was quite young because my um, my parents separated when I was 12 and I actually went to live with my dad. So these these were kind of early on um, and, and really important. And all of that would have been kind of part of the family meetings as well. Like that would have been discussed. Um, but when I went to live with my dad, it changed kind of in terms of it was less of a parental and child relationship. Um, and I had a lot of freedom to make decisions that was built on what had come before. Um, but we were more like equals, I suppose. And and I would have had more influence from that age onwards in terms of, you know, what happened and what we did and, you know, from what we might eat to, you know, if I was allowed to go out or whatever it might be. So definitely that had an impact as well. Yeah. We were only a couple of episodes into this podcast, but it's a recurring theme that people who develop a sense of leadership uh, are, get access to that oftentimes when they're younger because they they don't take as long to to develop a sense of their own identity or trust in themselves that they can back their own voice because oftentimes they were given that opportunity when they were younger. And once you can kind of find your feet to say, I have something to say, and I am going to be proud to share it and yeah. trust myself in my own voice, um, then that only helps because you go into situations with a lot of confidence. And sometimes amongst Irish people, that can be a bit of a problem because they can be um, they can be less eager to be forthcoming like with their ideas. And yeah. if that's encouraged, that can sometimes set you apart, which is a good thing. Yeah. And what's even more important is that there was four other people, plus my parents, who would argue against me, which is so much more important to, to, to learn that not everyone's going to agree with you and probably people are going to have super valid counter arguments to yours um, and that that's always going to be the way. So I actually think finding your voice absolutely is one really big part of it, but also knowing that there's going to be pushback and that you're not always going to be, yes, that was brilliant, Katie, or you were right, Katie, or there may be no resolution to this argument. We might both just be on different sides of the spectrum. So I think that that was really important as well. Yeah. That's cool. It's like it makes you makes you become more comfortable with conflict. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Not like family to do that. <laughs> so you you were you were spent that year um, in the in the factory, yeah. and I can only imagine that that must have solidified whatever idea you had. Or I'm sure even so, when you decided you were going to go to college, that you probably like put a lot more of yourself into it. And I'd done a lot of research to make sure that it was going to be right for me and the size of the college and, you know, where it could potentially take me and all those kind of things. And part of it was that I felt like, you know, the school system or the education system hadn't necessarily suited me. So the fact that in my third year, I would do a 20-week placement instead of being in class all the time, that was a really big draw for me because I felt... I could have more impact there rather than maybe sitting in a classroom. So did you feel that way when you, even when you went to college, you still felt like the school system? And when when you say it wasn't suiting you, um, like I understand there's authority and things like that, but authority kind of dwindles when you get to college. So what were the things that felt that you, that you felt weren't suiting you in terms of the school system Um, or education system, I should say? 
I think, look, I think definitely college changed that for me. Absolutely. I think more in school, it was just, you know, you sit there, you don't say anything. You know, it was it was a, a traditional convent school that I went to in Sligo. So that's kind of the way it was. And I'd had such a great experience in primary school, an amazing um, uh, primary school. So it just kind of shifted for me. Um, and then I went to Maynooth and I was totally lost. And then I felt, you know, I, I couldn't do the continue with the subjects that I wanted to. So just all kind of, you know, wasn't super for me. Um and college definitely changed that, but I, and, and I have continued in education and I, I do love it, but it's, I don't think I test well, right? I'd rather be in the trenches doing the work and making it happen as opposed to writing a beautiful, you know, version of what might happen. <laughs> so. so you feel like you've got more of the skills, the application and the practical instead of the theoretical. Yeah. So you mentioned that 20 week program. So in your third year, it opened up where you had to you had to spend 20 weeks in a company, right? Yeah. And who did you choose to go to? I wrote a, a letter to the marketing manager of the Irish Times. Obviously, family really love the Irish Times, but um, particularly love theatre in my family. And we went a lot. And my sister had been uh, shortlisted um, as Best Supporting Actress in the Irish Times Theatre Awards a couple of years before. And I'd always watched them and see who the winners were and checked out the coverage and all that kind of thing. And I thought this would be incredible if I could go and do my 20-week placement working on the Theatre Awards. Um, so I wrote a letter to a wonderful woman called Maeve O'Mara, who was the marketing manager at the time, and, and asked her, would she take me on for the 20 weeks? Um, they didn't have a graduate program at the time. It wasn't anything that they'd done before. She's a really good pal of mine now. And, and I say to her, what, why did you respond? And she said, I have no idea, but I just did. And what was it like? How did you feel? Now you were out of the kind of theoretical side of school and you were into the practicality of it. Did it suit you? The Irish Times, for me, was an incredible foundation as your first you know, real job um, and to be part of the the structures um, and the way everything was set up there was really interesting. And also I, I was incredibly lucky because when I joined the Irish Times, the editor was a woman, Geraldine Kennedy, and the managing director was a woman, Maeve Donovan. So for me, my first experience was that these two women ran the business. And I think that definitely stayed with me for a long time. It was in, great. In what there. sort of a way? Just because since then I've always worked for men. <laughs> So for me, I think it was really important that there was no barrier. There was like my boss, Maeve, was was a woman. And then the people who ran the business were women. And I think um, I hadn't really been exposed to that before. And I think it was important to see that from it, from the first day of kind of my my career in, in real business. And then you went back to school. You went back to college for a bit. Yeah. And then the minute I was finished, I, I went and worked there. What role did you go into then when you went when you went back after college? Uh, marketing exec. Really? Okay, yeah. so you had gone straight in. So it was the marketing department that ran all the events. So I kind of came in and I worked on higher options and then I stayed on and worked on the theatre awards. And then I, as I was there, I would just say, well, I'll do that. I'll, you know, I'll take that, no problem. And, and you would do different things like reader offers or you would do competitions or you do small little admin things like that at first. Um, and then work the, your way up to being part of, you know, developing the concept for the radio ad and meeting the agency and all those kind of things. Um, and I just took to it. I, I, I loved it. And... Um, and then I, that's when I went back to, to DIT when I was in there and I was really enjoying it and, and did my master's in marketing. And you went back and did the master's and did that reposition you then to go even higher up within the yeah. Irish Times? Yeah, yeah. so um, we we got a commercial director in called Paul Farrell and um, he he was actually the person who kind of took me aside and I always really appreciated. He was like, you need to get a real marketing qualification because this is going to, you know, stunt your progression. Um, and the Irish Times supported me in that and paid for me to go back and do it so it was amazing I think he kind of saw potentially where this might go um, and then Maeve who was my boss she went out on maternity leave and, and didn't come back and they advertised for the role and I applied for it and I was totally the underdog not the one who should have got it loads of other people who applied for it internally but just went my way and so, so this was this position led to what then after that that was the head of marketing yeah, yeah. within the Irish Times so before you had gone to DIT to do that master's the recession had hit Ireland yeah and the Irish Times was probably struggling in any way before the recession came along because now everything was moving toward digital. Um, the Irish Times, I know, which some people might know, is, is owned by a trust, right? Yeah. And does that make things move at a different pace or in a different direction compared to independently kind of commercially focused Absolutely. Media companies, yeah. I, I don't. I wouldn't, wouldn't blame the trust, but I would say... <laughs> the structure uh, of a it, very, maybe. Yeah, the structure and... Um, 
the decision making process and just the, the red tape. There's there's a lot and, and there's there's reasons for that and it's it's incredibly important in some ways. And I actually love the articles of association and the memorandum of the trust. It's really beautiful how it's written and what it says that the Irish Times should give to society and provide for society. And it was one of the reasons I fell in love with the brand and why I wanted to work there when I learned more about that. So I think it's incredibly important, but I also think it, you know it's it was written quite a long time ago and you have to be careful and you have to move with the times. I still think that role can be there and the history and heritage of the Irish Times should remain, but um, it sometimes does make it really difficult to move with the times. Um, and also unionised and all of those kind of things, they all add, whereas you go to more of a startup environment and, and you can get things done really quickly. You can make a decision today and implement it tomorrow. And it, it's it's really lovely, but it also comes with its, you know, its fallout as well. So there's no no perfect, you know, situation. Um, and you learn different things from each kind of dynamic. And what did you learn from having to deal with that? Like you were you dealing with it. What did you learn dealing with the recession when that came around? Because there you were working in the marketing department. Readership was dwindling you now had to make a move over to digital. There was just so much happening. It, it all kind of came at the, at the wrong time and it all came together. Yeah. Um, so what, what, can, what did you kind of start to deal with first? We didn't get, like, we obviously got hit, but it wasn't like one day, you know what I mean? It, it happened over time. Um, and I, I suppose when I reflect back on that time, one of the things I always think about is we would do a radio, radio ad every Tuesday. So we would have go to the editorial meeting, find out what's going to be in the paper at the weekend, and you would do a radio ad promoting what the content was. But you would have to pick three pieces out of the whole of what was going to be in the newspaper, from sport to business to, you know, the weekend review to whatever it was, and hope that they were the ones that were going to land, you know, people to go out and pick up the paper. Um, and, and at the time, you know, listenership for radio was dwindling as well. So, like, every audience was kind of coming down, even though you're still... So, I think to continue to do the same thing in marketing all the time, week in, week out, is is wrong and it's not marketing. That's not my kind of marketing. Um, and I think that we probably did that for too long and we relied on the fact that a radio ad would would equate a X amount um, increase on our circulation figures. And we should have been uh, learning more about our audience. And we did, we, we worked with the Morak and we did loads of research, but we couldn't tell what articles were being read in the paper. And like, that is fundamentally, you know, you, you need to know what people are reading in order um, for you to be able to respond and expand on certain concepts and make sure that you're resonating with the audience. And that's really tough when you're in a, a print publication because you just can't tell. How do you start to kind of undo that and, and create something new out of the old foundations? Yeah, like I think to be fair to the, you know, the, the board and the management team and all that kind of thing, these conversations were going on for a long time about, you know, what was the future going to look like and digitally what were the Irish Times going to do? But the reality was there was no one out there who had the answer, right? So everyone was kind of flailing about a little bit and we had so many conversations with other media outlets across the globe to try and learn from, you know, what they were doing. But there was no one size fit all and there was no, you know, magic wand that was going to fix this. And we had to figure it out in our own way. And we did a lot of of work as a, as a management team on, you know, different scenarios and what it might look like. And ultimately it came down to, particularly for my department, was, you know, we needed a, a CRM system that was going to inform us about, you know, who our audience were, what they were interested in, what they were reading every day, and use that data to, you know, build forward into whatever it might be. And I wasn't there for the paywall. I was there for the early conversations, but that happened after my time. And when you look back in your time then at the Irish Times, what were kind of, uh, can you think about some of the enduring impacts that you had or some of the projects that you were involved in? We were taking a traditionally print marketing team and merging it with a digital marketing team or, you know, whatever it might have been. So definitely, you know, bringing those people together and along the journey that was a really important part of it and then you know bringing in the email marketing system was was really big because it had impact across the business um and uh, there's a there's a colleague of mine Kleena Mooney who's still there and she heads up the the data and, and analytics department in the Irish Times and she's amazing but you know what makes her great at her job is that you have to be aware that what you're saying is is people's blood, sweat and tears. They've written this beautiful piece of content. They think it's incredibly important and, and it is. But actually the the figures or the analytics might not say so. And you have to manage that very carefully because numbers aren't everything. There's something to be said for, you know, certain content being created for the brand or because it's culturally relevant or because it's important to a niche group of people and, and they should be served as well. So um 
it can't all just be down to numbers. For sure. And I think that's a very important thing. And especially if you're going to talk about like maintaining a brand, that must be one of the biggest challenges is it, in running a media company nowadays where for advertising numbers, there's such a huge desire to see what the level of engagement is. Yeah. But that can oftentimes strip away the heart and soul of a brand if you're just going to focus on getting engagement. Yeah. So how do you how do you balance that out? So again, because because I, I you know I'm, I'm a marketeer at heart, I think it's incredibly important to understand what the values are and the vision and mission for the brand before you start out and do anything else. Um, and that would have been a lot of the work that I would have done at Maximum when, when I went in there originally. Um, it had the numbers, but I don't necessarily think it had the reputation or um, the professionalism. It mm. was startup, and it, you know it was it was scrappy and it was exciting and it was brilliant and it was definitely you know, given um, other media outlets a run for its money, but the internal structures weren't necessarily there for it to build a brand and build, um, you know, a professional business, um, which we, we did over the, over the time and, and the guys still do there. My first job was, okay, what does this brand actually stand for? And why are we here? And why are we important in society? Um, and and then from there you build out. And it, it's the, the distinction between traffic and audience, mm. right? So... It is so important for any commercial business to have traffic because those numbers are what's going to be put up on a, a slide when, you know, you go out selling advertising. And, and that's how we survive. So that's important. But actually, there has to be a layer which is audience and it's much more sophisticated and you understand way more about them and you're serving them in a more meaningful way, not necessarily by, you know, a paywall or anything like that, but they become a member of this community. So they interact with you more, they engage with you more, they send you content, they come to your events, um, you know, they they tweet about your content, you know, they, they engage in so many more ways. And I think you need a balance of those. You need traffic and you need audience. And, and there's a slight distinction there for me. And is that kind of where the major shift has taken place in media nowadays, where previously it was this kind of linear style of communication where you had a group of people in HQ who wrote content um, that engaged them, that interested them, that represented the brand, and they knew that they had an audience who would who would respond to this. But now it's it's much more horizontal in that sense that it goes across the board where you mentioned community. Media has become a kind of uh, an extension of community. And it's almost a very interesting thing nowadays uh, where urban cultures are becoming much more secular. So we look to these establishments, we look to these media groups to kind of bring us a sense of truth yeah. or to just bring us some message um, that kind of will show up and represent what our daily lives look like. It's a connection. So it's connecting you to like-minded people. So you see people sharing that content or you feel part of that group and then you want more, right? You, it's almost addictive. And um, I think that that's really important. I mean, when I was in Joe, like the early days, user-generated content was what kept us going because we had quite a small editorial team. Um, and now in, in Irish Central, we have a contributor network because we can't possibly represent the Irish diaspora everywhere. Um, and there's people who really feel passionate about telling their story. And we've given them a platform in the contributor network to tell us their story. And that story is going to resonate with someone else. You know what I mean? Who's going to mm. read it. And and that's how we start to build that connection that feels really authentic because it is. And that's important. So I want to take us through that transition because you left the Irish Times. Yep. You were the head of marketing there mm -hmm. up until 2014. And then you went to, a, a could not be less traditional, yeah. to uh, what's now known as Maximum Media. But at that time, it was was it really just Joe.ie? Did they have her.ie at that time? They had her, yeah. Um, it wasn't as well known as Joe and probably didn't have the same traffic that Joe would have had. So Joe would have been the kind of flags, sh flagship brand. Um, and then her would have come kind of maybe two years later, I think. Um, so it was the two brands at the time when I joined. And all digital publishing. It's all, all online. digital. Yeah. 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 And what was that like? You were brought on as the managing director. Yeah. So I um, I always admired what they did. I felt like uh, they had a, a really great way of drawing you in on social. And I thought this was brilliant. And I'd always kind of watched it from afar. Um, and I went to meet Niall. They were doing a, 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 a big, they did a big PR piece around hiring like 24 staff. And I just reached out to Niall. Um, and we had a coffee and we had a couple of cups of coffee. He said, look, he wanted someone to come in and, and, um, and drive the business. And I, I was looking to, I was worried about getting kind of trapped in the traditional media space. And I wanted to, to kind of dive feet first into digital and, and, and see what would happen. Um, and this was the perfect opportunity for me to do that. And I felt like there was things I could see straight away that we could do. And myself and Niall, when we spoke, really agreed on the direction for the business and, and things like that. So um, it was amazing. I went in, it was, you know, it was startup, it was scrappy. 
Um, and there was there was a lot of work to do. And, you know, two weeks in, I kind of went, I done. <laughs> but I, I just thought, you know what, let's go for it and let's see what happens. Um, and there was great people. The, the, the thing about Maximum is it's it's not one individual. It's the sum of the teams that are in there and the creativity, the passion, the relentless drive that they have to keep it going. And, and really, you know, interesting opportunities to do whatever you want and fail or, you know, be successful or try something new um, and be agile. So great team. And I loved working with the people there. And that really made it. And we constantly had a new strategy. You know, there was never a week where it, it kind of didn't pivot a little bit and, and change. But it worked. What were the first things, uh, first points of housekeeping that you had to take care of when you went in? I mean, kind of editorial policy and, um, you know, just making sure that, you know, what our messaging out in the market was correct and it fitted with the brand. And the first thing I kind of did was a a brand workshop with the editorial team and Joe. And I went, well, what does Joe stand for and and why is he important and why do I care? Or as a man in Ireland, why would I care about what Joe has to say about anything? And there was people on the editorial team who knew that's like inherently and it was just amazing to it was such an easy brand workshop I think the easiest I've ever done because they knew exactly what they were they just maybe didn't have enough bodies to do that meaningfully every day and so that went really really well and uh, straight away we started to see you know green shoots in terms of we tweaked the editorial slightly and we started to talk about things that were not necessarily this is a viral video, even though that was still incredibly important. We talked about men's health or we talked about, you know, politics or we talked about different things like that. Um, and and then that we, we started to then go out to, to advertisers with that kind of thing as well. And, and that worked really well. It was responded to really well. And um, what was that like for you going from a news organization to could you call it could, could you call Joe a news organization or is it like a lifestyle brand? I think it's a lifestyle brand, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's it's changed over the years. I think when it was an, an entertainment website, you know, like that's what you went for your entertainment news. That's what you went for. Um, but I think we pivoted that over time and it became much more, uh, you know, about bigger topics as well as just a bit of a laugh and some light relief, which you need as well. Um, so the balance was, was better, I think, um, as we went along. So it was very different, but what was what was beautiful about it was the, you know, the, the instant analytics and, you know, the understanding of what was working and the feedback on social. Um, and people were really vocal about how they felt about Joe. They shared the content a lot. You know, we, the kind of mantra that we went with was we create content you want to share with your friends. You almost wanted to be the first to discover it so that you could share it on social and then everyone would be like, oh, that's brilliant. And then they'd share it. Um, and it worked really well. So we knew we had this massive audience, but we just only knew the the Google Analytics data about them. So we went out and did uh, quite a meaningful piece of re- research to kind of find out what what are they talking about? How do they feel about their body? Um, how do they feel about mental health? Do they think they drink too much? And we created this um, like beautiful piece of of intel around you know a certain demographic in Ireland at a time, and we presented that to all the agencies and went, this is. These are the people you want to talk to. These are the things that matter to them. These are the experiences they want. Um, and that generated a lot of business for us. And that opened a lot of doors for us in terms of just going, we're, we're not actually selling you anything. We're just saying, this is what we know about our audience. And people were like, okay, now we know what we want to do. And what, now we know what kind of content we want to partner with you to create, to make make this happen. Um, and that really kicked it all off. And we did that every year. And then we built from there. So, you know, we learned that we needed to create the broadcast unit or we needed to do you know create made by maximum media they all came out of kind of small little nuggets the answers weren't all in there but the nuggets were in there for us to start a discussion and for the management team to sit around and go okay this is really interesting from the research now where can we take that and what does that mean for the business and how did you find that on your end because this was your experience had been in in the marketing department at the irish times now you had many departments that you had to take care of yeah so how did you find that when you were, because you were learning a lot throughout this process? Yeah, I had to learn loads. I mean, I, I had really strong relationships with the editorial team in the Irish Times. So I, and I have a, a great grow for it. Like, I think it's so important um, and massive respect. So, so that was fine. I think, you know, the, the areas of like, you know, the P&L, you know, you had to start looking after that as well. And you kind of had to be HR and you had to be health and safety and you had to be all of those kind of things. Um, 
But I, I love I love that. I love being in an environment where you get to be involved in every facet of the business. And yes, you do learn loads, but you also have massive respect for people who know more about things than you do. And you ask for advice and help and support and you, you build a team that feels that they can do that. And that's lovely. That's a really great environment. Did you get a chance to lean on any mentors who were who were kind of doing something similar to you or in the kind of role that you're in? It's it was it was a new, it was a burgeoning industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I had a very um, open relationship with with uh, a number of people who I'd worked with previously. So I, I kind of call it my own personal boardroom. Um, and I have, you know, someone who, you know, will put their arm around my shoulder and say, I'm doing great if that's what I need that day. Or I'll have someone who, you know, say, cop on, Katie, just go do it. Or, you know, someone who has much more experience in, in, in industries than me. So there's some great people. My first boss, Maeve O'Mara, who was in the Irish Times, I, I, I talked to her quite a bit. Paul Farrell, who I also worked with in the Irish Times. There's a lady called Anne Corcoran, who um, has her own PR agency, and, and she's been amazing. So I think sometimes you already know the answer. You just need to say it out loud or you need to bounce it off someone else. And I think that that's what I did a lot. I, I went to people who... I trusted and I admired and I said, this is this is where I am. This is where my head's at. Um, but it almost unfolded as you were talking about it and they just kind of probed you in uh, in certain areas. Um, but th- that those people are, are incredibly important and have been so helpful in my career. Essentially finding a sounding board for your yeah. own thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you started, when you joined Joe, they were very small. You've mentioned there was like a real startup culture. How, um, how many people were on the team? So I was the 27th employee. Um, and when you left... We had 80 in Ireland and 40 in the UK because we'd launched Joe Media. So from when I went in, there was Joe and her. We did a bit of a rebrand around that. Then we launched Sports Joe. We launched her family. Um, We built the broadcast unit. Uh, We launched Joe Media in the UK um, and we made made by Maximum Media. So there was there was always something new going on. And that was, you know, um, I think that was definitely Niall's influence as an entrepreneur and, and kind of constantly looking at what's coming next. But also um, incredible, you know, we, we'd built up a really strong team of leaders across the organization who contributed to that and made that all possible. What was that like being part of that journey? Because you you went on to win. Can you tell us some of the awards that you ended up winning and the accolades yeah, you got throughout Europe? Lots of um, DigiDay Europe awards, um, which was great. And a big admirer of them as a publication and I read their stuff a lot. So that was lovely. Um, I think the one that will stand out is the um, Financial Times Uh, fastest growing companies in Europe and we were the second fastest growing in Ireland Um, and that was really um, that was really big for me because my background wasn't necessarily sales or commercial Um, so you know that was probably the area where I had to double down and make sure that I I delivered and we increased revenue like sevenfold over the time um, that I was there and we had an incredible sales team Um, but that was that was a really big accolade for me I just thought like the marketing stuff you know I thought was in my wheelhouse whereas this felt like a really great achievement and, and for everyone in the business because the teams worked really, really hard. And Joe was turning uh, a decent profit as well by the end yeah. of it when you were leaving, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is quite a statement for media companies even in today's shape because yeah. most of them are, are just trying to, to make to make it to break even. Yeah, yeah. It's a, t- tough, it's a tough environment for any media outlet and I think even now, you know, you, you have to look at how you're going to future-proof it, right? So it's fine even if you're making profit now but what does that look like in, you know, a year, two years' time? And when you look at it to see how you guys were able to grow scale and still maintain making a profit, what do you think that was down to that, that you did that was particularly unique or that was a central theme? Um, I think constantly innovating or changing or doing something new. I mean, I think in, in a market like Ireland, people always want a media first or something different and brands jump on that. So, you know, we had one of the first Facebook live shows um, in Ireland and we had sponsors on board for that straight away. We jumped into podcasts very early on. Um, we did events and we created, you know, the, the branded content piece, to be fair, was before I even joined. That was what Maximum was known for. Um, and we did it in a really meaningful way, but all driven by knowing who our audience was and how they would respond to that, as opposed to putting a press release up on site, which isn't going to work for anyone. How long? You were there for four, four, four years. Four years. Yeah. And... Um what happened? You were you were riding the crest of a wave. It was it was amazing. Yeah, it was it was great. Um, and I loved it there. But I got to a point where I was like, this this isn't working for me anymore. Um, and I wanted to to do something different. 
Um, and, you know, it, it had given me exactly what I wanted to go in there for, which was totally, you know, immersed in digital Um, wanted to build a brand. That was, you know, one of the really big things I wanted to do. Um, and the fact that I got exposure to a new market, so I got to go into the UK and I, I lived there for a period of time to set that up as well. So I got to, it ticked a lot of the boxes for me. Um, and it, it just got to a point where it wasn't, it wasn't the right place for me anymore. And uh, I wanted to move on and do something something different and I, I wanted exposure to an international market I wanted to go further afield again um, and hence <laughs> getting here yeah so we're here in New York and now you're here you're here with Irish Studios yeah and to people in the US I think the brand that they might be most familiar with from Irish Studios is Irish Central yeah absolutely but there's a number of brands that are under that umbrella um, yeah. So who else do you guys have that you, that you manage within that? So we have um, a magazine called Ireland of the Welcomes. We have a magazine called British Heritage Travel. Um, we also have um, a travel e-commerce play at the back of Irish Central, which is called Irish Studio Travel. We currently have Irish Tatler and Food and Wine um, within the mix as well, which was uh, acquired from, from Nora Casey, Harmonia Brands. So you went from a traditional media company, yeah. which produced newspapers uh, daily, and then you were there at the time when they were really starting to make a pivot into digital, but left before that was kind of fully implemented yeah. or before the paywall was set up for the Irish Times. Then you went to an establishment that was entirely digital, yeah. nothing on the print side. <laughs> yeah. And now you've come somewhere that's got a, a little bit of both. Yeah. So Irish Central is is just is just digital, digital right? Yeah. But then you've got a lot of those other brands that are there amongst it that are magazines. Yeah. So that must be a real, that must be, that must be difficult. That must be challenging. Or is it easier for you because you're able to kind of bring all those different lessons that you have to encompass them together? Yeah, I think it is. I think, you know, um, I, I still love print. I think it's, you know, it's a lovely experience and, um, but it has to be in the, in the right way and it has to, um, speak to the audience. Um, I, I, I think, you know, you, uh, part of my remit when I went in originally was to kind of, um, drive the digital agenda for Irish Studio. And and that was, yes, you know, Irish Central was already in a, in a really good place, but where could we take that to? Um, and for the Irish brands, Tatler and Food and Wine, they didn't really have any kind of online presence and we needed to build that up. And I, I felt we needed to kind of reinvigorate the brands and give them kind of more of a more of a meaning for the current audience that they were serving. Um, so we rebranded both of those. We built, you know, the websites, drove the social channels, but also created a new vision for for what they were and why they were important in society, um, which was great, a great project to work on. And for Ireland of the Welcomes, it's slightly different because it's, you know, it's a luxurious, aspirational travel magazine. So it's, it's for people in North America or, you know, wherever who want to travel to Ireland and here's all the beautiful things that you can do. There's beautiful visuals in there, really kind of nice long form editorial. So that's, you know, the people who are subscribing, they're all subscribers. It's it's the majority of them are subscribers. So, you know, they know exactly what they're getting and, and that's exactly what they want. You know, it's a, it's it's created for that audience, I suppose. Mm. Is your target audience then, is it primarily focused in Ireland or is it a, is it a cross between Ireland and the US? It's the US, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is the US for now. So, like, I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of our um, editorial team are based in, in Dublin just because, you know, Irish Central um, and, you know, IOW and all that kind of thing, they're, they're all about a connection to the island of Ireland and, and how special that is for people. And it's not necessarily because they're from Ireland, it's, it's because they have a history or a heritage or an affinity with Ireland. And that connection is incredibly important to them. And when you were, when you were at Maximum, you know, you were dealing with a younger audience, you were dealing with an audience that have, have a very uh, wide presence across numerous different platforms. You mentioned podcasting, even if you have stuff on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat you can cover a lot. So therefore your engagement numbers are going to be really, really, really high because you could have one person and you're serving them similar content from the same source across four or five different platforms. Yeah. Sure, it's a slightly different audience with Irish with the Irish studios. It is, but it's um the reason that they're all going there is 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 similar, right? So for the Irish Central audience, it is that they're very engaged because of that connection and what it means to them. They're very passionate about it. Whereas I think potentially they they could have been more fickle um on in the maximum brands, just because there was so many other options out there and you know, depending on what the story was, you could probably get a, a version of it somewhere else. Whereas we're we're lucky because we're quite unique in in serving the Irish diaspora with Irish Central. We're lucky in that regard. We we know who our audience are and, and how important the brand is to them. 
And now you're like two, two and a half years into the role, right? You're now co-CEO. Yes. Um, yeah. What's the vision? What's the vision for Irish Studios and where where these these, these this collective of brands is going to go to? Yeah, so we've we've done a we've done quite a bit of work over um, the last. Uh, well, I'm there about a year and a half now, I think. Um, and uh, so we built out the contributor network, which I mentioned earlier, which is just giving the audience an opportunity to, to tell their story. Um, and really, it's it's about kind of loyalty, connection, and then experiences. So you know the traffic and audience thing we talked about earlier, there's going to be people who are just going to go on and read certain content on Irish Central. And that's cool. We love them and we want them there. But there is a layer there that we can start to see, which is much more engaged and um, wants to be much more involved. And and we, you know, we have their loyalty. And now what we need, we want to do is through the contributor network or through kind of, uh, I suppose, building a platform for them where they can connect with other like-minded people and feel part of that community um, and feel that they can influence what the conversation is uh, all the way through to offering them experiences that will help them connect with that group of people. So that's what we're working on at the moment. So essentially developing an online community where it's where it's the people that are part of the diaspora can feel connected. Very similar to what this podcast is. The You know, the whole idea of the podcast is yeah. that the global Irish business community that hopefully if there's somebody listening in Sydney that feels like they have an opportunity for Irish studios or yeah. it, whoever it may be that they feel that they can open and tap into this network and contribute yeah. and um, later on in this episode we're going to hear from our mutual friend Fergal ah, uh, with story tracks so we'll Great. be covering his story and th- yeah that's the it's so it's a similar mission in that sense Brilliant, to yeah. to expand it beyond that yeah and there is something unique in that Irish community you know and um, I, I think, you know, we talked about this earlier, it's everyone's so willing to help each other out. Mm. And it's, so it's really nice. There's, there's great goodwill. Um, uh, so it's nice to be able to connect that and, and, and bring that into one place where people can kind of communicate. And opening this up now to listeners that are listening to this, um, talking about people that can contribute. Yeah. Uh, how, how can they contribute? How can people get involved with what's going on in our studios? So with with Irish Central, we do have the contributor network, which is literally you just log in with your email address and you can create whatever you can write a piece or you can upload a photo or a video or whatever it might be. Um, And essentially, our editors will go in and look at that and go, "Okay, yeah, our audience is going to be interested in that. They're not going to be interested in in something else. Um, And that's kind of our our version one of it. Um, And we're going to develop that over the next while with the idea that, you know, if you contribute, you know, quite a lot, you become kind of um, your your opportunity to kind of get more involved increases um so ideally we would kind of like to create ambassadors who are able to go in there and you know go straight onto the site and, and build that out and you know there can be a revenue model behind that and all those kind of things um but w- we think there's enough people who want to tell their story or who want to be involved um, and want to be ambassadors for the business as well um so that's what we're going to hope to do amazing and yeah. i want to talk a little bit about partnerships okay um because i know that there is a partnership in the works that's happening yeah so i suppose part of the the reason that i i left maximum was because the future that i saw was all about consolidation particularly in ireland because there just wasn't going to be enough room um for all all of the players in the market and you've seen a lot of acquisitions in in Ireland and, you know, there's a lot of rumours about who's for sale and who's not and all those kind of things. But as part of kind of the work that we did with Irish Tatler and Food and Wine, we started to talk to other players in the market because the writing was on the wall for us in terms of, you know, partnerships were going to be the way forward. Um, So we started having a conversation with the Sunday Business Post and, um, you know, not related to anything else other than what could we partner on? What might that look like? And, you know, you're a great brand. We feel like you align with our brands. Where can we go with this? Um, And that quickly changed into a conversation which was actually stronger together. So Irish Tatler and Food and Wine will, will move into the Sunday Business Post group. Um, and we'll still be involved and we'll offer support and advice and all those kind of things. But actually, you know, we have a female market that they don't necessarily have right now and they are eager to um, engage with. They have a massive events, you know, uh, piece within uh, the business as well. And we have some really strong flagship events that will move over as well. So it's actually really exciting. And I think even for the brands, it gives them much more scope to grow by being part of, of that organization than maybe we might have had um, staying, you know, kind of on our own um, in the Dublin office. And does that help you in the US market or is that more of a focus for the Irish market? It's more of a focus right now for the Irish market. But, you know, um, you know we're good pals with the, the guys in the business post now. And, you know, we'll we'll look at opportunities for how we can work together in the future on, on different projects. OK. And I, something I, I just from looking at your Twitter is that you're, you know, you're very passionate about um, female empowerment. 
and um, supporting women that are that are doing great things in business and and in the arts as well. Uh, there's certainly a voice for that. I saw that you're part of uh, Business Arts yeah. as a board member. Does yeah. that lean into that that kind of work, that mission? Yeah, I mean, I'm I. Um, I, I love the arts, you know what I mean? It's It's been a really important part of my life. And um, I got asked to be a, a judge on the um, Business Arts Awards one year. Um, and I absolutely loved it. Um, and it was just such a great experience to see all the work that's going on across the country. And after that, uh, I was asked to be on the board. And I've absolutely loved it. Um, I think, you know, it, it, it goes back to why I started the, the college course originally. I wanted, you know, I wanted to see what business acumen could do to help, you know, the arts industry. Um, and the mission for Business to Arts is about how you can bring arts organizations and businesses together for, you know, both of them to benefit from it. Um, and they do great work. And it's been an absolute pleasure to be in, involved in that and, and work with the teams across, you know, loads of different projects. Outside of that, I feel incredibly passionate about women in business and I, I still think the struggle is there. Um, and, you know, I think if you can help in any way to elevate a message or um, help build confidence or be a sounding board. Um, and I try to do that as much as possible, not just for women, for for anyone, you know, who um, I can help out or I can support. Um, and I, I do think that it is sometimes just about being a sounding board. I think a lot of the time people just need the space to verbalize what it is that they're kind of struggling with or what's, you know, going on in their head at the time. And often they know the answers or once they say it out loud, they figure it out. But it's important to have someone who will ask the right questions and who, you know, maybe can can give you a, a dig out or can help you out with something. Um, so I, I, I try to do that as, as much as I possibly can um, and provide support or advice or whatever it might be. And, and I also think I learn a massive amount from it. So you meet people all the time who think incredibly differently to you um, and they might be younger, they might be older, or they might be, you know, from a, a totally different background. And you kind of get to see how their brain works. And that can be really interesting to take back into the office and go, OK, that's it. I, I don't think like that at all. But what if I did? And so I think every relationship like that should be reciprocal and um, I've been very fortunate that I've met, met some incredible people who uh, it's just been a joy to kind of work with and, and support and help out. Amazing and are the rest of your family now at this stage are any of them involved in media or journalism or nope. anything in those capacities no nope. are any of them still involved in the arts? Uh, nope. No. <laughs> no. So both of your sisters have left it? Yeah. 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 They, they enjoyed it for a while but it's uh, yeah it's a tough gig it's a tough game. So I'm gonna go for a quick fire round but just to get your first take when I say these words. Okay. Greek mythology. Oh complex. <laughs> <laughs> I could see it on your face before I even said it. Yeah. Um, attention. Oh. Uh, oh, God. Because it's certainly the age that we're living in where everybody's tr- yeah, trying not to get hold of it. Is it good? Is it bad? Um, I think it's bad. You think it's bad? Yeah, I was going to say, the first word I was going to say was weak. Really? Yeah. I just think it's, it's I think it's a concern for me um, just around how informed we are. So you think about, we started off talking about, you know, my parents giving me the Irish Times and reading that and what you might garner from that versus what you might take from an article that you read online or that you only get, you know, halfway through. Or So I think, you know, the information that we have is short and nuggets. And I think that often, not everyone, but I think often we don't get the real message. Mm. That's worrying. Yeah, for sure. Um, Twitter? Oh, I love it. Yeah? Yeah. yeah it's I a go-to it. for you. Yeah. And business to arts? We t- talked about it, but just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It means a whole lot. Yeah, I love it. I, I, I just think um, for me, it, you know, a lot of the work that I've had to do has been very commercially focused and you have to make sure that the P&L is, 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 is right and, and um, that you can pay the wages and that you can do all those kind of things. And that's incredibly important from a business perspective. But, but actually some of the projects that I've been most passionate about in my career have, have not been things that necessarily straight away make money. You can't put you know a number against it of how much money it's going to make the business but longer term it has an impact and I think that that's what business to arts does I think it encourages businesses to think outside um you know what they would normally do and it's not necessarily the impact isn't necessarily immediate but longer term term I think for for staff for brand uh, for creativity I think it it does an amazing job it's good for the culture. Yeah. The final question that I want to ask you is if you could go back with the experience that you have right now 
to um, younger Katie just when she was starting to walk in the doors of the Irish Times for the first time uh, while she was still in DIT. Wow. What would you say to her? Uh, I would definitely, you know, tell her to be more confident. Um, you know, I was much quieter when I started off in my career. I definitely found, um, you know, I was, I was female and I was a lot younger when I was in the Irish Times or in the early part of my career. Um, and I, I, I probably should have found my voice a little bit earlier, but I think probably anyone could say that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's all a stage of growth. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Katie Maloney. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how Katie and her team are going to evolve Irish Central and build out that community side of the platform, because I think it's something that's really going to serve the Irish community in the US. And continuing on with today's episode, we're actually going to be speaking with another Sligo native. Fergal Nealon, the founder of Storytracks, is going to be speaking to us about his app where you can store and share stories to bring them to life. I heard about Storytracks almost a year ago when I was back in Ireland and thought it was this amazing idea to preserve the tales and anecdotes that are the lifeblood of Irish culture. And toward the end of 2019, Fergal was in New York and it gave me a chance to learn more about the app and the very, very interesting life of the man who founded it. So I was 10 years a professional poker player, um, played on the international circuit at, at, at a fairly high level. Um, I had, we have we've a beautiful wee girl, Julianne. Um, she's four years old now, but um, so four years back, I, I tried to, to, keep that, to keep that profession going with a young child, but it just wasn't, wasn't conducive to, um, to family life. So I said I needed to get out and, and get something more, more um, less risky and secure and somehow wound up in software systems and entrepreneurship course in DCU. It was a one-year course and really took to the entrepreneurship side of the module. It's um, obviously some form of uh, desire or, or want for risk in my life because uh, instead of finding something pensionable and secure, I ended up in startup world, which, believe me, is way more of a gamble than poker ever was. <laughs> so throughout that module, we came up with a business plan and, and the business plan is what what became went on to become story tracks a lot of the inspiration of fergal's passion and enthusiasm for retaining these stories came from his father yeah my father was a fantastic storyteller one of the best in the country in in my mind and, and many others his he had an amazing career um one of his first jobs in his early 20s he was a cub reporter taking notes at the foot of Eamon de valera's bed as de Valera dictated the copy for the next morning's Irish press. He went from there, he, he became an editor of the Sunday Review. Himself and John Healy had a backbencher column. They were the first people to really take on politics and add colour and flavour to political commentary. He went on to RTE and presented a number of shows, and one of those shows was On the Land, which I suppose was an early version of um, an Irish audience might know nationwide at home. So he, he, he went around and set up filling cameras and captured the story and flavour of mainly rural towns throughout the country. Um, I suppose a, an, an early incarnation of, of what we're doing in story tracks. He went on then to, to jump the other side of the fence and became a government minister. So he was, he was a minister, um, a Fine Gael minister during Gareth Fitzgerald's governments in the early 80s. His first portfolio was arts and culture. And amazingly enough, about a year into Story Tracks, a video popped up on the RTE archives and it showed Dad launching a campaign to preserve the folklore and cultural heritage of the Irish language through glorious VHS, <laughs> which is amazing. Like, it was literally what, what we're trying to do, like, you know, 30 years back, 30, 40 years back. So I had a background in media, visual storytelling, film and, and TV. and. It's like you never you never capture your own and the, and the people closest to you. I, I don't know if you've if if you've you've captured your family members, but I never did, and um, and my dad never caught his his father, even though he was involved in media. So when dad passed, like so many stories went to the grave that day, gone forever. And for me, it really hit home that it's not just my dad; it's everyone's forefathers. These stories are are dying every single day. And it's not just in Ireland, it's, it's all over the world. So the, 
the passion and the, the core of the heart of what we're doing with Story Tracks is to preserve those stories and importantly for us to, to put them on phones and put them under the noses of a younger generation that, that I feel might not have the same communication skills as, as our forefathers had. Mm. I'm not a patch on my dad at telling the story and he always said he wasn't a patch on his own dad. But I know I'm better than the teenagers I see that are communicating through Snapchat. I was at a meal in town in Sligo and it was like transitioning your students out you know, it was like one teacher with them, maybe 15 of the kids. And I noticed they were all conversing with each other through their phones. And that was the real light bulb moment. I thought, that, like, they're going to lose the art of conversation. And that's what makes, certainly Irish people, that's, that's one of our greatest assets, mm. you know. So I could see that generation, as I mentioned, with dad pass, his friends passing, and these stories going to the graves. And it was, it was a way to capture those stories and put them under the noses of younger generations. Originally, the platform was actually focused on the direct consumer, but now StoryTracks is broadening its reach into the travel industry. Yeah, like I, I, I've done a lot of traveling myself down through the years, and, and I always thought that in, instead of just these review-based sites, wouldn't it be amazing if you had like the, the best character in town in your pocket, in, in, in your headphones, to describe the area to you and bring it to life? So, so that was really what, where, where I saw a gap. Um, and the more I did research into it, the more we could see that there's a huge issue at the moment in, in the travel industry about lack of digital touch points to in-destination visitors. So what's happened out there is your, your Expedia's, your bookings, your, your flights, your hotels, they, they get you here. So they, they get you to New York City, right? But, but the only time your visitors are touching base with them again is if, if they have a complaint, if their bags are missing or they want to change room or change hotel or something like that. So... It's a captive audience that is like led out into the destination, but they're not touching base back with the brand. So what we can do is be a really significant value add to the visitor and also an immersive and engaging digital touch point to the travel brand, which can increase their ancillary revenues. And their first major client was the Hyatt in Dublin City. The Hyatt-centric Liberties mobile application it's called Savvy Centric, so I'm sure by the time this is out in the show, it's free to download on iOS or Android. So it's S A V V Y Centric, C E N T R I C, all one word. That can be downloaded. And what we're doing with this Hyatt, which is the first Hyatt to come to Ireland, is basically they've captured the content for us. We've pinned its locations around the Liberties, which is just just a perfect location. It's so rich in in stories, and the visitor will come. And when they arrive at destination, they could download the application via QR codes, which are on the walls. They're, they're showing old Viking artifacts, I think, on the walls, and true leaflets in a room. Now, when they travel around the destination in the Liberties, um, immersing themselves in these stories, every, say, we push notifications. So, say, for example, every hour we can say, look, you've been doing a lot of walking. How about a foot massage back at the spa? Or comes five o'clock, early bird time back at the, back at the hotel. So they're a brilliant, brilliant early adopter, the Hyatt and Gary's team. They're putting a lot of marketing budget behind it. They've been really, really, they've been, they've been really flexible in terms of, of what they're willing to try. And, um, and they're, they're just great to work with. So it's, it's a brilliant test case for us to see what sort of engagement we can get and, and, and in particular, what sort of uh, value add we give to their visitors. And once we have that data, then we're in a really strong position to, to hopefully move into the Hyatt chain and then move into other chains and, and other sectors in travel. Fergal has since added to the team. We have just, um, I'm delighted to announce we have a new co-founder on board, Gerard O'Loughlin, who's actually one of my best buddies from home. We've known each other since we were five. I've been looking for a co-founder for the past year. And the more I was looking, Jared was helping me out because he, he had a background in travel. He's ex-product manager at Hostelworld. Done some amazing work with them. And he's really data, spreadsheets, revenues type guy. Just does all the stuff that is my weak point. So it's a lovely complementary skill set. So we're looking at, um, once we have the test case with the Hyatt, really pushing on into airlines, into hotels, into destination management companies. Um, we're also looking at content creators and creating a global content creator network to, to get content worldwide, real authentic, um, good quality video content onto the application. 
to support Fergal and Story Tracks. Well, an ask I have for the Digital Irish community is we're, we're currently raising a seed round. We're looking for a million in dollars and uh, we'd love to talk to any potential angel investors that are particularly ones that are interested in the, in the travel slash media sector. So another ask for the Digital Irish community would be if there's connections out there to online travel agencies, to hotels, destination management companies, airlines. Um, I, I just love to love a warm introduction, really. And if you want to connect directly with Fergal. So we're at Storytracks, all one word, dot IE, um, at Storytracks on Twitter. And uh, you can get to me, Fergal, at Storytracks, dot IE. That was Fergal Nealon, the founder of Storytracks. And I want to say thank you so much to Katie and Fergal for taking their time to join me on the podcast. And thank you for listening. I'm so grateful for the emails and LinkedIn messages that we have received with feedback on the podcasts and some of the suggestions that we've received for guests to bring on the show as well. And if you're interested in being featured on the show or maybe have some suggestions, you can email hello at digitalirish.com or you can visit our website at digitalirish.com. And finally, if you want to connect with us through social, just use the hashtag digitalirish. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please review the show. It helps us so much. And you can also find the show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcasting platforms. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Kieran Kay and Matt Stewart from the Full English Post for producing this episode in association with the Bowery Common. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast.